Tonight's New Testament scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And that can be found on page 2 of your bulletin. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through, Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, all right. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan. I serve as one of the elders here at Grace Downtown and also a pastoral intern. And it's, uh, it's always an honor for me to come back up here and uh, share the word with you all. So will you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your grace and your mercy uh, today and in this coming week. God, we pray that you would feed us richly over the, by the power of your word, Father. Um, we pray that you would speak here tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been uh, going through a series this summer looking at the various one another texts uh, in the Bible, wrestling with what it looks like to come back together as a community after spending so long apart over the last year trying to think about year plus now. Uh, how to pray for one another, how to love one another, how to encourage one another. And we're continuing on in that series tonight, looking at this passage from First Peter that Glenn uh, preached on last week, but we're coming at it with a little bit of a different angle tonight. So before we get too far into this, I think a little bit of context will be helpful. There's a big question that looms in the background of many parts of the New Testament in our scriptures. Most of the people who followed Jesus closely during his ministry on earth were Jews. They were descendants of Abraham, of the nation of Israel. And this religious community of Israelites throughout their entire history and including the time up until Jesus' ministry and the early church, saw a huge part of their identity as being distinct from the people around them. They were to be separate, called by God himself to be set apart from other nations. And so their religious practices were deliberately unique. There were strict codes about the roles of the priests, the sacrificial system, Religious feasts, holy days, the temple. There was a total rejection of the gods and the worship practices of the people around them. But it wasn't just their explicit religious practices that made them distinct. Every aspect of their culture was set apart. The foods they ate, the weekly cycle of working and resting, the family, sexual ethics, standards of hospitality, almost every category under the law highlighted their distinctness as a people. If you were a foreigner in the land of Israel, you were given immense respect as a person. People traveling to Israel were a special protected group under the law. We read that a little bit in our Leviticus passage tonight. 
But it would have been very clear to you that the Jewish people saw themselves as set apart, as a people different from you. So this is the context that Jesus comes and ministers in in his life on earth. The primary audience for his teaching, for his ministry, is this religiously and culturally unique group of people who basically categorized everyone in the world into two groups of people. There were the Jews, and then there was everyone else, the Gentiles. But it's pretty clear from the ministry of Jesus that he always meant his message to extend much wider than just to this culturally distinct group of people in and around Jerusalem. It was always intended to go further. And so this big question looms over the first generation of Christians. What do we do with the Gentiles? How do we treat the Gentiles? This is a culturally distinct group of people who all of a sudden find themselves at this climactic moment in history, which was long prophesied, by the way. This isn't something that was totally unexpected. But God is calling his people now to bring in people from every different culture into this Christian community. People who they used to consider separate, who have been strangers, are now supposed to become friends and brothers and sisters who share in the good news of Christ. And so they're asking these questions. How are we supposed to do this? How do we cross these cultural barriers that divide us? How do we move from being a community of Jews to a radically diverse community? How do we go from being a community who is set apart by our ethnicity to one that is set apart by how we love each other, as Glenn talked about last week? How do we invite strangers into friendship with God? And the answer that the New Testament gives is hospitality. Hospitality is the context in which strangers become community. It's the context for worship. This church is to be a place of hospitality, of welcome in the name of the Lord. Shout out to our Connect team. Thank you for welcoming us every week. So it's no wonder that hospitality is one of the hallmarks of the early church for all of the incredible miracles that are going on for all the dynamic preaching, all these titans of the faith, all this wonderful new theology about who Christ is and about what that means for everybody, what that means for the world. The Bible goes out of its way again and again to talk about the ministry of hospitality that was going on and how important it is, how important it will be for all time. So what does this hospitality look like? We're going to look at three things together, the who, the how, and the why. Who's being called to this ministry? How do we do it? And why do we do it? We'll incorporate some wisdom from some other passages of Scripture as well as we go through this passage in 1 Peter. So who is this message for? Who is being called to this ministry of hospitality? You know, if you're an introverted person who lives in a a tiny apartment, in D.C. who doesn't have any room for guests, barely has enough room for yourself, and you're thinking, all right, I get to check out for the rest of this one. Uh, I have bad news for you, because the ministry of hospitality is one for everybody in our community. It's one for everybody in our church. You know, Peter doesn't call particular attention to certain groups of people here in this passage. He doesn't give this command to certain social classes or certain people with the right amount of things or anything like that. He does recognize that different people have been gifted in different ways. We're stewards of God's varied grace. 
he says in verse 10, that beautiful phrase about the diversity of God's gifts and his grace for his people. We don't all have the same calling to hospitality, but we all have a calling to hospitality, to being a welcoming person and part of a welcoming community. Sometimes we can have this really narrow view of hospitality where it's all about dinner parties. It's about place settings and delicious food and setting the ambiance, being as much like Martha Stewart as possible. Having people over into your meal is great. This is something that's commended in Scripture. We'll actually come back to this a little later on. But there's much wider scope to biblical hospitality than just dinner parties. You know, whenever you see talk about hospitality in the Bible, one of the primary emphases is actually uh, the treatment of strangers. And some scholars actually think, you know, the best way to define biblical hospitality is as the love of the stranger. Interesting application of hospitality. But the principal call of hospitality is not entertaining or impressing people or moving up the social calendar or the social ladder. There's nothing transactional about it. It's about loving people, serving people who've done nothing to earn it and won't uh, pay you back in any way. It's about treating people with a posture of friendship, whether you've known them for your whole life or whether you're just meeting them for the first time. That can happen on the sidewalk. It can happen in a restaurant. It can. It ought to happen in this place. It can happen through meal trains, through babysitting, through helping someone else host, through helping out our parents who are so stretched thin. There are a lot of ways to be a welcoming person. You know, Jesus Christ was the most hospitable person who ever lived, and as far as I'm aware, we don't have any accounts of him welcoming anybody into his own home. He spent his ministry as a guest and still practiced hospitality in incredibly powerful ways. So that's the who. How do we do it? Uh, First of all, I think we do need a little bit of a COVID disclaimer. Uh, The most important way to practice hospitality is safely. I know we were all hoping to be totally out of this pandemic uh, when we started getting back together a few months ago. And hospitality is incredibly important, but I'm not advocating for (laughs) disregarding public health guidelines. Being a good neighbor and a good member of the community uh, is also important. So disclaimer aside, back to hospitality. So the book of Acts in the Bible uh, records the narrative of the early church and especially the massive, really incredible growth of the early church in the first generation or two after Christ. There are a few different points where Luke, who's the author of Acts, takes a step back to talk about the rich community of the churches in Jerusalem. One of the things that gets highlighted is the commonality and the unity of the believers in these churches. There's no place for partiality in the church. Again, we saw that in our Leviticus passage. Acts 2 says this, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Day by day, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They're sharing possessions together, opening their homes to one another, eating meals together, worshiping, praying together. There is an incredibly rich togetherness about this community. There are a lot of things that we can apply about these passages to hospitality, but I think, first of all, it highlights the value of gathering in our homes. And I know I said hospitality is not all about dinner parties. It's not all about having people over in your homes. But we do still need to acknowledge that the home uh, is a special place for hospitality. They're a place for the community in biblical hospitality, not just for ourselves. 
Uh, Erwin Ince is one of the pastors in our network who's done a lot of great scholarly research um, on the experience of people who attend churches where they're not part of the, the cultural or ethnic minority, or majority, sorry, where they're ethnically and culturally different from the majority of, of people in the church. And one of his many important insights from his research is the value of sharing meals together for people to feel like they belong. Many of the participants in his studies reported that eating meals together, particularly in cross-cultural settings, was an important part of the life of the church in order for them to feel like the church was a home for them. You know, we seek to be a cross-cultural community as a church. That's one of our missions, something we strive for. And what we do in church on Sundays matters for that, but what we do in our homes matters just as much. So as we engage in hospitality together and welcoming people, let's hold on to our cultural preferences loosely. The way we think about etiquette or mannerisms or personal preferences, that stuff is never as important as people. We want to be sure, we want to be able to share life together as a community, as a church. So we also see these passages in Acts, a communal focus on hospitality. There's very little attention given to individuals in these passages that talk about the rich community of the church. Hospitality is community-driven. Rosaria Butterfield is a, uh, a Christian author who's written a lot about hospitality, something that's very near and dear to her heart. She actually became a Christian through the hospitality and the welcome of a local pastor and his wife. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University at the time, was doing research on Christianity in America from a, a critical perspective. And this local pastor she'd never met before had read some of the articles that she'd written, and he, he wrote her an email inviting her to just come over and have dinner with him and his wife, knowing that they had almost nothing in common, especially with how they thought about religion. Uh, and she decides to take him up on this invitation, kind of out of nowhere for her. She goes over for dinner one night and ends up going back for dinner every week for the next two years coming to faith during that time in a way that really upends her life in pretty dramatic ways. She's got a lot of things to say about hospitality, but one of the things that I appreciate about her approach is the role that guests have to play in hospitality and in welcoming people. When followers of Christ share a meal together, the traditional host and guest dynamic should break down a little bit. Guests are not passive onlookers who look to be entertained. They're active participants they're encouraged to help. Practicing hospitality means living life together, sharing life together for those few moments that you are together, especially if it's in someone's home. There's no need to hide things from those who are coming over. We need this kind of community, the kind of community where we can be open to sharing our real lives together. So as we approach hospitality together, let's be quick to offer help to one another. And maybe more importantly than that, let's be quick to receive help from people too, you know, rejecting this prideful impulse to be seen as self-sufficient. You don't need to put on a mask to be hospitable, as the Bible calls you to be hospitable. It's fine if your kids whine. It's fine if people know you have dirty laundry. <laughs> Let's welcome people into our real lives. So that's the how of hospitality in the home with the community. Now, the Christian call to hospitality is one of those uh, commands that can be easy to ask the question, am I doing enough? Are we doing enough as a church? When the Bible says, do not lie, it's a little easier to know 
how to meet the expectations of that command, right? But with hospitality, are we doing enough to be a welcoming people? Are we doing enough with the particular gifts that God has given us? Are we being good stewards of the very graces we've received, our homes and our time? I think if we take a little time to reflect on the why of biblical hospitality, why do we do this? I think it might help a little bit here. Why are we called to hospitality? What is our motivation to be a people of welcome? I was thinking about the the novel The Great Gatsby this week as I was preparing for this. It's a classic American novel. It's about 100 years old now. Uh, made it into a movie with Leo DiCaprio a few years back. The title of the book is named after one of the central characters in the story, a man named Gatsby, who lives in this mansion outside of New York City. And Gatsby is legendary for the lavish parties that he throws. He invites all kinds of people to these parties. He throws them all the time. He spares no expense. The alcohol flows. There's music. There's a host of waitstaff. It is a lavish affair each time. But he's also this very mysterious man who you don't really know uh, at the beginning of the novel, and nobody seems to really know him that well. He throws these huge parties, but he shows no sign that he actually enjoys them. It's very strange. He'll often make an appearance briefly and then disappear again shortly afterward, and that's the extent of his enjoyment. So why does he do this? What is his motivation for these extravagant parties? And of course, you, uh, you find out later on why he was doing it all, and it makes a little more sense why he would open up his home in this particular way. And all that's to say that motivation matters. You know, why we are serving will come out in our hospitality. If we're seeking to impress, we'll be extravagant. If we're hoping to get something out of people, uh, we'll affect the way we treat them. So why do we do it? Why are we called to this particular ministry as a community. Paul writes this in Romans 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Don't miss the logic of this passage. It's essential. He has already shown you hospitality. He has already welcomed you as a person into his community. We are fully welcomed. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. Yes, God offers forgiveness of sin for all who put their faith in Christ, and that's already way more than we deserve as a people, isn't it? That's more than we would be able to earn ourselves if we were left up to our own devices. But God's generosity doesn't stop there. Believers, you are called friends of Christ. You are not just accepted into his presence. You are loved in his presence. The end goal of our faith is not a neutral status where God looks at us and says, you know, good enough. He brings us into real communion, real joyful fellowship with him. Look at the last verse in our passage. To Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And you know what Christ does with his glory? He shares it with us. He shares it with everybody who puts their faith in him. This is part of his prayer in John 17. Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to those who believe in me. Here's a a quote from Frederick Buechner that I found to be very powerful on this topic. 
There is little we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point. Not anything that we ever did or something we were, but something that has been done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of the one who dies on our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. The promise of heaven is the promise of a great feast beyond what any words can describe. When you read in Revelation about a new heavens and a new earth coming down to where we are, that's because our present world cannot contain the life that is to come. This world can't contain the joy that is to come. It can't contain the feast that is to come. The great feast that our host shares with us requires a whole new earth in order for him to share it with us. But God is so generous that this is not only a future reality for us, right? We hear the echoes of the great feast, the great banquet, even now around our dinner tables and in our churches. There's a quote from Butterfield, ordinary hospitality sounds domestic, but it really shakes the gates of heaven for the souls of the people you feed, hold, and love. This is the why for why we practice hospitality, for why we bother showing love to people who have done nothing to earn it and who won't pay us back. The most ordinary acts of hospitality can shake the very gates of heaven. By the way, that strange uh, sentence at the beginning of our passage, um, the end is near. Glenn talked about this a little bit last week, so I won't get into it too much. But just to say that uh, this is more about an attitude than it is about predicting the future, right? This is saying that heaven is our reference point. We live in an age where we look forward to heaven, and that is our reference for why we do hospitality. Friends, if you're thinking about hospitality as merely something that you do because God has commanded you to do it, we're missing the point. It's not quite right. If you're imagining God standing up in heaven with his arms crossed, eyeing you closely, making sure you're serving people, making sure you're taking care of those around you and doing good deeds, that's not the picture of God that we get. That's not the picture of God that we have in this passage. By whose strength do we serve? Our own? No, by God's strength. We cannot help but be limited in our attempts to love and serve and welcome people, but he offers strength. The reality is that the Holy Spirit is waiting at the ready to come down and bless our ministry of hospitality, our ministry of welcome. God's command to practice hospitality is an invitation to experience and share in his blessing. It doesn't mean it's going to be all fun and games and it's not going to take any work. Being truly welcoming can be very challenging. It can be very hard. It can be taxing. But you better believe that if we're commanded to do something, that God intends to bless it. I mentioned earlier that Christ was the most hospitable person who ever lived. His generosity and his grace were contagious everywhere that he went. One of the things I love about his ministry is that his critics accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. He feasted so well on earth that he was criticized for it by people. Imagine what that eternal feast is going to look like if that's how he feasted on earth. Imagine what just an echo of that feast could look like in the lives of our community. 
Let's be a people who feast with, uh, with the generosity and with the grace of Jesus Christ, our perfect host. Will you all pray with me? Father God, this is a, a rich invitation that we don't deserve, and we thank you for it. Father, we're humbled by it. We praise you. We glorify you. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a people of feasting, um, understanding that you lay out a feast for us, and that's why we do it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.